0: This is The Curious Gamer, a show about the culture, design, and joy of games. I'm Debra Pulaski. People who spend their lives creating art often have something that never leaves them. Maybe it's a specific story you want to tell, a character you came up with, or simply a certain feeling or mood you want to express. This turns into a project that begins when you are very young. Before long, it embeds itself to your soul. It comes with you wherever you go, even as you change addresses, schools, and jobs. This project is always thought about, often worked on, but rarely finished. A break spent away from the project may last weeks, months, or even years. But the project maintains a steady gravitational pull on the artist, always circling them back around. The shape of this project may change, but its core has been crystallized, its form remaining constant even as the artist is recolored by the flow of time. I have a name for this phenomenon. I call it the forever project. I am intimately familiar with forever projects. There are at least a few forever projects that orbit around me, even as my center of gravity shifts every few years. I mean, The Curious Gamer is one such forever project. But sometimes, honestly, I wish these projects would just leave me alone. Life is busy enough with family, friends, and work. Finding time for yet another big commitment, let alone finish it or turn it into something tangible, is a stressful ordeal. And every time you take a break from it, it feels like you're failing, like, it'll never materialize into the final form you've always hoped for. But once these feelings wash away and you finally do make some progress on your forever project, the end result is always worth it. You come to realize just why this project has lasted forever. You see your whole self in this project, who you were, who you are, and shades of who you might become. My guest today knows what it feels like to have a forever project, and their project is a video game. But this game is not quite done being made. Though this person has been working on the game, more or less, since they were very young, it recently became a full-time endeavor, thanks to the help of a successful Kickstarter campaign that funded the project. This is how I first discovered the game. Today, I'd like to share the story of a man in his forever project video game known as Orange Island. And in doing so, I hope to also provide a behind-the-scenes look at what is involved in making a video game like this. You're listening to a song from Orange Island. Now when I first learned about Orange Island through Kickstarter, I was already intrigued but this song, used in the game's first promotional trailer, is what really sold the deal. I could tell this song had a story behind it. And I knew I wasn't alone in feeling this way. The game struck a chord with so many people that the Kickstarter was able to fund itself well past the 100% goal. I knew I had to learn more about this project and the people who are building it. So I reached out. Thankfully, the man behind the game
1: got back to me. My name is Ted Sterke and I am making Orange Island. So
0: Ted, uh, listeners might already have an idea in their head as to what this game looks like just from listening to the music. But how do you uh, describe Orange Island?
1: My elevator pitch is evolving. I mean, basically it's sort of a It's like a Nintendo game. I would say NES, because I've been living in the UK for a while, but I guess NES for American listeners. (laughs) um...
0: The NES, or NES, stands for Nintendo Entertainment System. But many people often just call it the Nintendo. The NES, first released in 1983, is home to Nintendo's first major video games, like Super Mario Bros., The Legend of Zelda, Duck Hunt, Metroid, and many more. Your memory of this machine might have been jogged a few years ago when Nintendo released the NES Classic, which was a miniature re-release of the console pre-loaded with several popular titles. Orange Island is designed to look, sound, and play as though it's a game for the NES, like you could just plug it into the console as if it were the late 80s or early 90s. The game has a charming and colorful pixel art aesthetic, with characters running and jumping around in an 8-bit world.
1: When I started out doing it, I wanted it to be like, you know, you had literally discovered this long lost game, but now it's, I think it's sort of evolving and, you know, I don't want it to be too modern so that it's like breaking this illusion, but it, it does weave in like modern themes and sort of like, um, you know, it does have kind of a topical story and yeah, I just want it to be like, I guess more, more diverse and sort of empowering and inclusive than old Nintendo games actually were back then. But yeah, I don't know. it's sort of a mix of genres too. It's like I'm sort of going more with like action adventure RPG with a lot of exploration.
0: So the first one, Action Adventure Games, are games where you go on a journey as a specific character and overcome various obstacles, often with different abilities and tools, like The Legend of Zelda or Assassin's Creed. The other one, RPG, stands for role-playing game, and these games are often similar to action-adventures, but you typically get to customize your character more and have a bigger impact on the direction of the game's story. Modern game studios often combine different qualities from these game genres, which can result in a game that's extremely rich with different mechanics, complex, interweaving stories, and vast, beautiful worlds. Popular games like this include The Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild, The Elder Scrolls, Skyrim, The Witcher, and Destiny. But these are recent games that were worked on by hundreds of people with millions of dollars in development budget. But Ted is just one person with a small team and budget, so building something of a similar grand scale would be impossible. That's why a lot of independent game developers turn to the aesthetics of older games. By doing this, you can incorporate modern game mechanics from the titles I mentioned above, but present them in a visual and audio style that's much more cost effective. As a result, the games can feel modern, but look and sound like they came from an older console, like the NES or the Sega Genesis. Now, some developers may choose this style to simply tap into nostalgia, but people like Ted truly enjoy this aesthetic, and celebrate it for what it is, believing it has a lot of creative power and expression in and of itself. That it has the power to do things that aren't possible when a game moves into the ultra-realistic territory.
1: Before I sort of landed on doing 8-bit graphics, I had more of a 16-bit look and feel. When you have, like, these more higher fidelity graphics, it puts all this expectation for like you know smooth animations and I, I don't know I just sort of like saw myself going down this path of like <laughs> having to do you know loads and loads and loads of work, you know thus never finishing the game. So I think you know I'm not saying that doing 8-bit graphics is inherently easier, but it does save me on like doing a lot of animations and I don't know it's, it's really fun to actually work within strict limitations.
0: All right, so let's back up for a little bit. You know, what was your life like growing up? I mean, what led you towards video games and you know, eventually wanting to to create them yourself?
1: So I grew up outside of Rochester, New York, uh, in a really small town called Marion. It was, I mean, I really enjoyed growing up there because there's so much freedom. And you know, it's arguably not a whole lot going on there, but you know, it was the kind of town where you could just like walk over to a friends and be playing Super Nintendo with them. The NES was my first system, and then I I moved on to Genesis. And I mean, I loved that. I was I was so into. I was a massive Sonic fan. You know, I was just obsessed with those soundtracks. I just thought you know it was so cool. And back then, obviously, there was a huge like Sega versus Nintendo war.
0: Like many a kid in the 90s, Ted played many other games that would inform his work today, like Final Fantasy, Chrono Trigger, and Secret of Mana. More about that last one later. And so it was uh. Orange Island born around this time like while you were still in you know middle and high school.
1: Yeah, so I think originally it all stemmed from this like childhood um dream of like I don't know, it seems like a really 90s kid uh thing to say but like you know, I just wanted to be in my own video game basically. <laughs> I know that sounds like terribly uh self-centered but like it did start off as like just me and my friends in a game. Like I was just you know, even outside of Orange Island it would be like a game specifically starring, you know, one friend and then a game specifically starring another friend.
0: I I know exactly what that's like. Not for making games, but in middle and high school, you know, me and my friends made movies all the time because we were basically obsessed with seeing ourselves be the star of a comedy skit or an action movie or something. But, But then that led some of us to actually going on to doing that type of thing professionally. So that leads me to my next question. How did you go on into more formally making games? Like, did you go to school for game design or computer engineering or something like that?
1: Not even, I hope I'm uh, not a letdown here, but basically um, I guess I originally got into games just like in my teens, which I guess would have been around the turn of the millennium. You know, I just, i always loved games and I always loved just like computers and artwork. And I think you know the gaming industry is it allows people to sort of combine all of those things it's just it's a nice marriage of like you know sort of the nerdy programming side and this more artistic side and you know even music obviously and i mean i've i've just always loved dipping my toe into every one of those so i guess yeah like i studied new media design at rit for me back then I graduated high school in like 2003. So um, it was still early days, and I just sort of did the closest thing I could. I always wanted to do like motion graphics, did not end up doing that basically, but um, ended up in web design and always sort of worked on games in the background. So, I mean, even going back to when I was 15, I, I sort of started working on Orange Island, even though it's, you know, it's uh, completely different now. But it was always just my hobby throughout the years, because I just, I don't know, it was a nice little outlet to you know, write music and create pixel art. And you know at, at university, too, I was, um, I was learning a bit of code. I'm not going to say that's like my absolute uh, strong suit, I guess, but.
0: <laughs> Ted went on to graduate from RIT which is the Rochester Institute of Technology in the state of New York. But later, Ted decided to make a big change and move to the UK as he looked for the next chapter in his career. And when he arrived, he landed an interview at none other than a little video game company known as Sega. Sega! Yes, the Sega, home of Sonic the Hedgehog. (sighs) Some people just have all the luck. Maybe
1: I should move to the UK. So I moved to the UK 10 years ago and I just, you know, was very lucky in that I landed the interview there, um, pretty much right when I arrived. Yeah. So I was there for three years, um, mostly doing web stuff. So like every game that would come out, I would be doing a website for it. So, I mean, it was really nice cause I sort of got to see, you know, the pitch documents when, when games still in development, you know, I got to see like all, you know, high-res beautiful art assets, which I unfortunately lost. I had, like, I used to have loads of old, uh, like, Genesis-era, you know, high-res logos, like, you know, Fantasy Zone, everything, like, Altered Beast and, you know, like, these amazing scans from, uh, you know, Sonic 2 and stuff. I don't know. I've got to find it. It's really killing me.
0: Uh, Yeah, Ted, that's killing me, too. I mean, do you know what I'd give to get Sonic 2 promo art framed on my wall?
1: Uh, anyway, please continue. We underwent like a whole redesign of the Sega website back then, too. And in doing so, though, it was really fun because, like, basically, we had to create a little product page for every game, which included a lot of, like, you know, older legacy titles. So for me, that meant, like, doing a lot of research into you know, quite obscure games sometimes, like, I mean, Bonanza Brothers, finding artwork for that and then, you know, creating the appropriate artwork for each different territory was just like, it was quite fun. And I sort of took a lot of pride in like creating the artwork for these little uh, product pages, even like fighting vipers, like maybe a lot of people don't care about it, but I I don't know. I, I had so much fun like doing that page in particular. You know it was just it was kind of really exciting to see these games before anybody else could you know as as a huge sega fan for so much of my life at the time it was like a huge dream come true you know and i saw like i mean i know (laughs) like sonic 4 in hindsight uh isn't super well received but i remember when You know because even back then there was a lot of controversy about you know the 3d sonic game so when i saw these pitch docs i was like oh that's really cool like sonic 4 could really you know sort of revitalize the series or something
0: (laughs) so ted was at sega for a few years and when he left he considered a job at square enix which is the video game company behind some of the most beloved games in the world like the Final Fantasy series, Kingdom Hearts, and Dragon Quest, just to name a few. But ultimately, Ted took a different path.
1: I was looking at potentially working at Square Enix, but I sort of, I hopped industries and went into advertising. And actually, I mean, I have no regrets, really. It's not my favorite thing now, but I mean, it's nice because it's all, it's just like clockwork, because there's so many people... You know, project managers, creatives, art workers, and it's a really well-oiled machine. It's nice to work in teams like that. And it sort of teaches you just to, I guess, iterate really quickly. And it's like, I don't know, it's so quick, like, especially if you're dealing with a print deadline that, you know, there's not much faffing around. It's like, you just have to get it done, which is nice. When I was at Saatchi, we actually worked on a game. Basically, it would, it would sort of study the way that people were navigating the world. And they were taking this uh, navigational information and using it to study dementia, actually. And you play as a young man trying to uh, discover or find your father's memories, I think, because he's losing his. I don't know. In the end, it, it turned into like many thousands of hours of like research data for these scientists. So it was quite cool.
0: Ted went from working in advertising to digital marketing, to doing things with augmented reality and even freelance. But no matter what he was doing, something always kept circling him back to his forever project. And thanks to a new connection, the game was suddenly elevated from side project to something else entirely.
1: There probably wasn't single year that i wasn't i wouldn't at least dip into orange island over that time you know it it changed genres it changed visual styles and i think it was 2017 now i sort of revisited orange island again and i was like actually i think maybe i'll go for sort of an 8-bit look and feel i don't know something about it just clicked for me i was starting to post screenshots on twitter and back then you know there really was no game it was just it was still just me messing around and you know playing with these same characters that i had been developing over the years yeah as i was sharing these uh, screenshots online i didn't really have an end goal in sight because you know this was always just sort of my little side project throughout the years and um, but eventually xena from payload studios got in touch and she actually asked me if I wanted to show my game at uh, EGX Resed here in London. I mean, I was super excited and flattered, but um, I literally had no game to speak of. It was It was just screenshots at that point.
0: So, Ted finally set out to take all of his Orange Island art, characters, and music, and start building a proper game around them. Over the course of a few months, he created a playable version of Orange Island, which is a very short time to create even a demo of a video game. But Ted pushed on, and brought his prototype to EGX Rezzed, a gaming convention in London specifically tailored to independent game creators like Ted. What's interesting about Ted's approach is that it's kind of the opposite of how games are traditionally made. Game designers and programmers often will create simple, playable prototypes, To see if their idea for a game is even any fun to play, before moving on to making all the art and music. A famous example of this comes from Super Mario 64. This was not only the first 3D Mario game ever, but also one of the first full 3D video games ever, especially on this scale. After all, Mario games have always been, and always will be, about the simple joy of running and jumping around in a playful world full of fun obstacles. But for Mario 64, the designers created an empty white room to experiment with how Mario could move in 3D space, tirelessly perfecting his movements until he felt just right. This enabled them to figure out what it means to move a character in 3D space, how it differs from the things they did in 2D, and figure out any awkwardness that comes from making the transition as well as the new opportunities a new dimension of movement offered. Finally, the designers were able to make it so that simply running and jumping around as Mario was a fun enough game in itself. Only then did they start designing the world, the levels, other characters, and the music and sound. The gameplay was solidified first so that everything that came after was in service of the gameplay. But Ted is largely doing this in reverse. He had a specific story, set of characters and songs, and a general aesthetic that he wanted to convey. So he set about designing these first, and then finding a gameplay style that was in service of this art and music. I suspect that this is rapidly becoming as common, if not more so, than designing the gameplay first. Since their inception, video games have been conceived of and built largely by computer programmers it makes sense that their comfort zone lies in code. So for them, that is where the game's foundation begins. But today, the ubiquity of playing video games since childhood, as well as new tools that make programming video games much more accessible than in the decades before, allow people who are more artistically driven to bring their game ideas to life. So you worked like crazy
1: to get your game to EGX Rez, and then you show it off. How did that end up going? I would say the reception was better than I thought it would be. But I I do sort of go into almost every situation expecting the worst. (laughs) I thought people would be more harsh on my demo because first demo actually had no point. like There was no end goal at all. The first demo was like four screens and... I mean, it was pretty pointless, <laughs> but people seem to buy it. Um, you know, it's improved so much. And even since the latest uh, Kickstarter demo, I'm, I'm actually a bit embarrassed uh, of that demo now because I added some features um, that actually made me feel like the whole game just gels a lot more. Like, so now there's this sort of. Almost like a Castlevania II time of day system that I've added. Adds a nice little layer uh, to be able to, you know, sleep at an inn and it actually affects the time. And you can sort of decide when you want to wake up. And, and actually, Soyo Oka has written little songs for every time that the day changes from, like, day to sunset to night.
0: This brings us back around to one of the biggest aspects of Orange Island, the music. So... Ted just mentioned a woman named Soyooka. This isn’t just some casual friend of his. Soyooka is a bona fide video game music rock star. She’s responsible for the music behind some of Nintendo’s biggest earlier games, like Excite Bike, Ice Hockey, Pilot Wings, SimCity, and Super Mario All-Stars. But she’s perhaps best known for her work on Super Mario Kart. Soyo Oga had a legendary run in Nintendo, but left the company in 1995 to pursue freelance work on other games, anime, and standalone albums. Since leaving Nintendo, she hasn't done many chiptune-style soundtracks that are similar to her NES and SNES days. Chip tunes, by the way, are what older video game music is called, where the sound was entirely produced by the primitive sound chips built into the video game circuit boards. It's actually a fascinating topic that I'll break down in a different episode. For now, let's get back to Soyo Oka. Okay, so like, how did you manage to get this legendary composer to join your team? I mean, that must be pretty incredible to be working with someone like her.
1: Um, honestly, I just did a lot of research. So I, I managed, I think along with my writer, to, uh, it was just a matter of finding the company that she was freelancing for. I mean, it was really, for me, I don't know, like, email correspondence just is really nerve-wracking for me, to be honest you know, there's this added layer of, you know, the fact that I do not speak or type Japanese. So like, basically, I I had my very kind friend Yota, uh, translate my emails for me, because I wanted to get it right. You know, I didn't want it to seem like I was just putting all this stuff through Google Translate. And I wrote the agency that she was working for and he got back to me luckily and so it was just months of sort of like back and forth you know and i was i gave her a brief and at that point i wasn't speaking directly with her but um i i don't know It was just such an enjoyable enjoyable process and i was i was so happy and you know i'm still pinching myself that i got to work with her um that i actually briefed her on a few more songs um because i just couldn't help myself at that point, I got to email her directly, which was also really cool. It wasn't all business either. It was just, you know, sometimes we'd just share anecdotes and stuff, which was, you know, really amazing. I always loved her stuff. You know, I, <laughs> I go back and listen to The Sim City quite often. Um, <laughs> I don't know. There's just something really, I think, that I connect with. It's, um, you know, she's got sort of really classical influences. And I think she she taps into this melancholy, which I really quite enjoy and I think it sort of fits the mood of my game pretty well too so
0: Ted was gracious enough to share some of these songs in progress with me and now I get to share them with you and this is the first time these songs are out in the public ladies and gentlemen music for Orange Island by Soya Oka track. My one-year-old son was nearby when I first heard it and he instantly started smiling and dancing. Now, Ted also shared what he was talking about earlier, how there's little songs that play when the time of day changes in the game. This is the song that plays when it goes from daytime to sunset. And this is the song that plays when your character goes to sleep. so pleasant. It's so great to hear a renowned chiptune composer return to her craft after decades apart. However, Soyo Oka actually isn't the only famous musician Ted has contributing to Orange Island's musical score. There is another legendary game composer by the name of Haraki Kakuda, who scored a very popular game called Secret of Mana. Okay, so how did you then get Haraki Kakuda to join the team? Like, was it a similar process to Soyo Oka?
1: Almost opposite in that case. So again, it was um, agent who reached out to me, and this this was another just like random encounter where. Uh, <laughs> I actually don't know how he found me, but uh, his agent was originally writing to me about, I think, a chiptune artist who he thought would be a good fit for my game. Then I, I, you know, I looked at all the other people he was representing and I saw Haraki Kagura and I was just like, oh my God, (laughs) if he's available, how much would he cost, you know, for a song? And again, I I worshipped his music too as a kid. I, I played Secret of Mana. That was just mind blowing back then. I mean,
0: oh yeah, for sure. So, okay, so you're making music for the game, then there's Soyo Oka, then Haraki Kakuda. I mean, how many other people are writing music for the game?
1: Yeah, so it's it's actually a growing list. I don't know. I think it's just because I, I put so much importance on the soundtrack. I think, for me personally, I find music to be just so moving, and I think that, you know, just obviously sets the scene and sets the mood for these, you know, hopefully complex uh, emotions that I'm trying to con- convey, but... I think I've written like 20 tracks for the game, maybe. And then there's gonna be, uh, I'm probably gonna forget some names now, but uh, maybe most importantly is uh, Mark Sparling. So he's actually producing uh, the vast majority of the tracks. So he actually takes all of my songs and puts them into Famitracker because I can't lie, it's just, it's not my strength.
0: Let me explain this part really quick. So Famitracker is a type of music software called a tracker. I'll explain more about those in my chiptune episode, but in a nutshell, Famitracker is well known because you can use it to write and play music that uses the same sound as the NES, which is why it's essential for Orange Island's production. So Ted will write music in whatever music software he likes, then pass it along to Mark Sparling, who then rewrites the music in Famitracker to nail that authentic Ness sound style, since that's his specialty. And Mark has a few original tracks of his own in the game as well. But the list of composers doesn't end there. Next there's Anton Karazza, who is a saxophonist from Washington DC. And then there's Heos Foros, who's based in Canada and makes music in a darker progressive rock style of chiptune.
1: I think what's nice about having Anton and Hyos on board is that they sort of fill in the gaps in my abilities because I find like a lot of the music that I write is either kind of like a melancholy (laughs) slower song or kind of a happy poppy vibe. I just don't think I have it in me to write like a rock song or in Anton's case, like he, he knows jazz so well. And, you know, he does these really interesting, you know, like sort of like five, four rhythms. And I think, yeah, he just, he's able to tap into something that I'm probably not able to. So But in addition to that, I have Ellie Rainsbury, who did the um, soundtrack for Wilmot's Warehouse.
0: Wait, hold up. Wilmot's Warehouse? I love that game. And I love Ellie's score. I mean, I listened to that for like a week after playing the game. I mean, dang, Ted, are there any other rock
1: stars you're hiding in your team? I mean, there's one, one person on my list that I have not reached out to yet, but I would love to. And I do have, um, I've got another person who is quite well known, who I think is writing a track right now. So that I think should be an exciting announcement. And I'm really, I'm quite pumped to hear what they come up with. I mean, I'm very able to listen to chip tunes, and I do pretty much all the time, like <laughs> not only for research, but just because I don't know, like I enjoy it. And Nintendo games, you know, you had to have these strong melodies because, you know, you're really restricted by what you can do. But also, you know, to hear what people do within those restrictions is so impressive. It's hard uh, because yeah, you know, people sometimes can't get over the fact that they are chip tunes. I mean, my mom's one of those people. I know, like, <laughs> I'll send her one of my chip tunes and she likes it. But through the Kickstarter, I'm doing an acoustic remix version of I don't know. It'll be like sort of greatest hits or whatever. <laughs> She gets much more excited by the acoustic songs, actually, whereas, you know, if I sent her the original chiptune that I wrote, she's just like, yeah, okay, like...
0: (laughs) right. so you put all this work into preparing your Kickstarter campaign, I mean, what was it like when you finally pushed the button to make it go
1: live? Gosh, I was actually at work. Um, <laughs> when I went live with it and I mean I was just crapping myself to be honest I think the whole thing has been kind of just snowballing to the point where like I don't know just each step is is a sp- surprise even to myself like I can't believe it's gotten to where it has and I'm so thrilled and happy that it has but it was a lot of work you know just you know once we did hit go it was just like you know constant work for a month you know even <laughs> I had like a holiday planned with my mom and I didn't actually tell anybody about it because I didn't want anyone to think that I was just like relaxing you know while the campaign was going on and you know even though I'd planned that before the Kickstarter you know was even a thing Um, (laughs) and to be fair like I was still you know even on holiday I was working I was like in the mountains working on my laptop So it wasn't the most restful holiday, but uh, it's so much work, and I think there are more expectations on game devs now because uh, you know. And it's it's nice. It's really nice to speak with an audience, and it's great to speak with people who actually care about what you're doing. Um, It's it's a privilege, but it is, it's work. It's like an extra layer of work. So I am trying to make sure I I strike a good balance between like, you know, chatting with people on Discord and actually working on the game.
0: (laughs) For those of you that don't know, Discord is a very popular chat app, mostly used by gamers. Like many independent developers, Ted uses Discord to chat with others about the game and answer questions from fans, which is how I first made contact with him. But Ted's right about the added challenges video game developers face today. You need to tirelessly market the game with info about the art, music, story, and game mechanics. You have to engage your audience and build a community around the game. All this on top of the already daunting challenge of simply building the game. But every single day, there are dozens of brand new video game releases from companies of all kinds and sizes. It's not enough to simply show up with a game and expect it to get noticed. Even games that are extremely well made might end up getting buried in all the noise. Thankfully, Kickstarter has enabled Ted to hire people to help him with all facets of the game's production, including marketing the game. And he very recently made another big change that will help too.
1: Yeah, so uh, I moved out of London um, after having been there for 10 years, uh, to the seaside. So now I'm on, I'm living in St. Leonard's on sea. I mean, I'm still sort of settling in, but it's lovely so far. And it's just like, I think, you know, London is so fast paced and you just really get caught up in this, uh, you know, sort of commute to work and then, you know, work all day and then just go straight home. And I don't know, I think it was really draining me after a while. So it's just nice to have somewhere that's much quieter basically. And, but yeah, like if I ever need a little, um, a little break or, you know, Know if I just need to brainstorm or something, I can look out the window and the seas right there. So, and it's much cheaper, much much cheaper than London, and and that's sort of key for me to be able to work on the game now too. Like now that means that I uh, don't have to freelance as much and I can focus more time on the game.
0: So, uh, coming back to Orange Island's story, you know, I don't want to have you spoil anything for anyone, but what can you tell me about how it's changed since you were a lot younger?
1: Over time, the story's really, really grown and it's grown to include like my grandma. And now, now the story mostly revolves around my grandma and it's almost like, almost like a magical realism take on my life. But like, also I've, I've mostly removed myself from the equation a lot too. So like the character that was originally based on me is, um, I would say like much less so now. And, and some of the characters are sort of like an amalgamation of people I've known throughout life and I don't know. I want it to be actually really hard to pin down, whether it's like, you know, modern or sort of medieval RPG or even a bit sci-fi. Like it it really, I hope it sort of hops genres quite a bit um, as far as the story is concerned. As far as my cast, I guess, is concerned, like it's rare to have, you know, even a playable grandmother. Like, you know, I, I do sort of struggle to think of many games where you're playing as an old person. But, you know, the cast does have like queer characters and, you know, there are people of color and, you know, I know um, I'm trying to include people of color in the writing process too. I mean, I hope to tell a story that is profound while also not like, you know, going overboard because again, it's, it's a Nintendo game. And so I don't want it to be like, you know, walls and walls of dialogue. So it's sort of about like every, every line should be like really hard hitting I, I don't want it to be like, you know, people are bogged down by dialogue or anything, but, but I think, you know, you look at Link's Awakening, for instance, and that, I don't know, that game like really messes me up. <laughs> and I think there are some amazing lines, and, but it's also really thrifty in, in the way that it like tells its story.
0: Ah yes, Link's Awakening, one of the games in the Legend of Zelda series. I'll definitely be doing a separate episode on that game as it's a foundational game in many people's lives, mine included. But I know exactly what Ted means by this. There's something about games, even ones with simpler stories meant to be accessible to anyone, including children, and even ones told with blocky 8-bit graphics and synthesized chiptune music. Something about them is able to captivate the imagination and embed itself into our emotions in ways that no other medium can. Perhaps older games can sometimes feel more meaningful precisely because of their simple art and storytelling style. We as players take an active role over the narrative, and in doing so, our minds fill in the gaps made by the primitive technology the games are rendered on. As we begin to play these older games, the stories feel less and less like they're being told to us from the people who made the video game, and soon feels as though the stories become our own.
1: You know, there's so much wrong in the world right now, and here I've just raised money for a game, and like, you know, maybe it's not the most profound thing in the world, but I hope it can sort of help people, and you know, in looking at the game, I think a lot of people think it's a lightweight story, and like whatever is just kind of cute, and you know, cozy, but I do want it to include some like realities from life right now. You know, that like, you know, we have this climate emergency, like, and most people just go on with their day. And I'm like, (laughs) I think I, you know, I want to stay informed and I want to do the best that I can in my personal life. But also like, I find myself stressing out about it a lot. And I'm like, I think it's also counterproductive to be like in emergency mode all the time. I don't know. Right. So, I guess what I'm trying to say, though, is that the game will have these sort of light, uh, fantastical moments, but I do want it to have like darker moments. You know, I want it to be like a wake up call for some people, too, hopefully. You know, I don't want to spoil anything, but yeah, it might get dark, but I think... (laughs) I think that's the nice thing too about working on a game like this is that you can really embrace like a whole range of options and, and themes. It's like if you are making like a game that is really edgy and violent from the get-go, it's like you're sort of stuck in that corner, I think. And again, it's like this game has been scarily a culmination of almost my whole life. You know, I love to code and I love to write music and I love to make art so um so rare to be able to do every one of those um, in any other art form. I just wanna make people happy at the end of the day, but also like move them.
0: Island's fundraising goal was 100% backed on Kickstarter in less than 24 hours, going on to receive 450% of its goal. Orange Island is expected to be finished at some point this year. The game will be available to play on PC, Mac, PlayStation 4, and the Nintendo Switch. On top of that, Ted is working with a company called Broke Studio to make an NES cartridge version of the game, This means you'll be able to buy a physical version of the game and slide it into an old NES machine and play it alongside your other old cartridges, like Duck Hunt or Super Mario Bros. 3. I wish Ted the best of luck as he makes his way to the finish line with Orange Island. What I take away from his story is that forever projects can come in many shapes and sizes, but they are almost always the embodiment of the person making them. Perhaps many of you listening have your own forever projects in mind, ones that encapsulate your own lives. No matter when this project started, whether it was in college, during the start of your career, or has been with you since childhood, it's never too late to return to these projects and it's always worth sharing them with the world. And you never know when someone will come along and help propel that vision into something more, something greater than yourself, something that will reach all the people you always hoped it would. Because chances are, Your forever project and the story you're trying to tell with it is something many people want to hear, and you are the only one who can tell it. The Curious Gamer was written, produced, and voiced by me, Devin Pulaski. Please subscribe to this show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and watch the show on YouTube. And it really, really helps the show out if you could leave a review or share it with a friend who you think would be interested. Also, I composed some of the music in this episode, but obviously much of it was created by Ted and the other musicians he's collaborated with. And I also used music from some other games. So I'll list everyone's names in the show notes. Thank you for listening. And no matter what you're doing... Whether you're feeling up or down, remember this, you're never too old to enjoy your life and play.